Okay, everyone, welcome to episode 26 of The Great Divide. This is Tom. I am here with Svine. Hello, Svine. Hello, pop pickers. <laughs> and before I begin, I, I have a question, Svine, for you that John Gouveia wanted me to ask you specifically. All right. He, wa- he wants me to ask you, what does the fox say? I could say that, but I'm afraid <laughs> you'll have to shoot me afterwards. <laughs> so I know it's gone viral, that thing about the fox. And if you... You can imagine if it reached the U.S., how do you think it's like over here? <laughs> I can only imagine. I can only imagine. All right. Well, enough said about that. I've done I've done what I was requested to do, what was requested of me to do. So we, we still don't know the answer. So we are here back with uh, episode 26. And this episode, we're going to be talking about the uh, big country at the BBC box set. And um, we're going to be just dissecting it like we usually do and um, – I think the the main thing that we can probably all agree on at the outset is uh, that this came as a bit of a surprise. I mean, I had no idea it was coming. I had no idea it was it was being planned, and it just kind of popped up one day where someone posted the link to this, a pre-order link, I think it was, on Amazon UK. And um, at first, I thought, well, I've got a lot of this stuff on bootleg, but I'll certainly buy it. I mean, it's great to always have something in uh, pristine condition, but the more I looked at it, the more I realized that there were things on there that I didn't have. And uh, when I did get it, I realized that there were definitely some things I'd never heard before. But without jumping too far ahead, I mean, how did you feel, Svine, when you first heard that this was going to be available? Well, I look forward to every big country release, and this is no exception. And uh, I looked at the content and had the same reaction as you, that I've heard this before, and I have a lot of it before, and some of it has already been released officially before. And uh, I really didn't get excited until I actually got it in my hands, which is probably, yes. <laughs> I should be excited way before then. But uh, when I looked at the actual quality of the packaging, the quality of the presentation, the effort that went into it, and the actual material and the quality of the material in the box, I I just realized I'm used to crappy releases because this is not a <laughs> crappy release. This no. is actually a quality release, and that's what I immediately thought. This is now something we need to talk about on this show and need to just dive into because something of this quality just doesn't come along often. And uh, I really didn't expect it for Big Country. Shut the first session we did for the BBC at uh, made a film was for um, David Kid Jensen. And uh, what we used to love about doing it in those days is because we were a, um, a really, you know, low-income band, it was like, you guys are doing a, a session. And it was like, well, let's treat this as a demo session. We've got new songs to record. So we would go down there and we'd give um, Kid Jensen or John Peel an exclusive on a new, a new song. And it's kind of the same way that we've recorded a new album, The Journey. We did um, a show up in Scotland um, about a year ago, and we actually managed to buy free studio time out of it to do new demos, so that's how enterprising we are, kids. For me, the ultimate was to get on John Peel. For me, if it was like, oh, I've got a one of my songs on played on John Peel, that's that's it, you know, it's, I've done that, you know. Yeah, I I was I think I was driving and, and I knew it was coming on or somebody had said it would be on that evening and frantically trying to tune in, you know. And when you hear it, 
it's it's very surreal because you're so used to hearing music that's not by you and we're so used to playing our songs and you hear it particularly being in the band you hear it raw as you're playing the noise is generated from you to hear it come from a third party while you're driving through the radio is very surreal it's like i it's like i put it on my a cassette on in my car at the time and I pretend it's on the radio and it's that surreal you know it comes on and you think is this us well hang on my drum should have been louder <laughs> It's kind of strange, <clears throat> almost like a, a history lesson, you know, um, when I got sent up the, the, the CDs, the DVDs, DVDs just to um, okay them and all of a sudden there's this gig that we did in Liverpool, um, Sefton Park, back in 1982 or 83. And I always remember that was like our first open air gig and yeah. we played in a bandstand in the middle of uh, what was was Sefton a, Park. Yeah. Like in front of us or something, wasn't it? Well, I think it just rained heavy, I'm not sure. Yeah. It was like a, our mini Woodstock, yeah. you know? Yeah. versions but it's a little bit more drier and clearer sounding yeah. than our own you know commercial sounding record as it were you know so that was a good learning curve it was always with the bbc it was always a little bit more proper you know when when steve was recording with us or we were demoing you know we had different reverbs but there was always this particular dry. sort of dry bbc sound that we, we knew we would get um, whether that was right or wrong for the band we took it as it was but it definitely has that sort of BBC flavour that, that gives it that little twist to it, which is great as well. You're hearing the band almost stripped back a little bit, you know, sonically, um, and that's good as well. Really honest sounding, it's how yeah. we would sound in this rehearsal yeah. room, for instance, you know, yeah. without all this studio trickery, really just, you know, we'll see what we get, yeah. It also made me very happy to see Tony Butler in the press and being very happy with the release and I think um, I have a quote from the Daily Express where he spoke to Kirsty McCormack and he said to see after all these years such a collection of recordings and great memories made by the BBC makes me, makes me feel like we got there I mean it's the BBC how cool so uh, that's, that's nice. nice yeah that's, that's, that's excellent and Tony is also in the liner notes which we'll get to in due course yeah and um, why don't we take a, a minute to just go over what's in this box and we can have our own little unboxing audio instead of video here. Um, it, yeah, and, and you say liner notes, and it's more like a book. It's like a little book that came with this thing, which I was really impressed with. So we've got we've got this book, um, Big Country at the BBC, which is full of new content, new interviews, some old quotes that we're familiar with, but some new comments from Bruce and Tony. And uh, the box itself, very nice, great uh, great packaging, both inside and out, which is really cool. Um, we've got three audio CDs, and the one thing that I only realized recently, that you probably noticed this immediately, but the, the colors of the three CDs are the three colors that The Crossing was released in. Um, yeah, we got the blue, green, and red. We've got one DVD, which is awesome. We'll talk about that. And then we've got uh, a poster, which is, is very cool. It's just basically, as you said, the uh, the front of the of the uh, box. Probably nothing that I would necessarily hang up, but it's still nice to have. Um, the little the little sleeve that these things are kept in is is really cool. It's it's purple and it's got a gold compass 
uh, imprint on it. And that's what a great touch. I mean, they didn't have to do anything like that for, for this little sleeve, and yet they even added some artwork to that. And then probably one of the coolest things about the packaging, I know you feel this way because you've talked about this before, is um, these little cards that they that came with this that represent the first four album covers. And we, yeah, I, I love these. These are beautiful. They gorgeous. They really blew me away. And uh, the box sets refer to them as postcards, and uh, that's sacrilege in my book. I know. Who's, who's gonna really use these cards as postcards? <laughs> really? Who's gonna do it? I think of them as art cards. I think art card is a much better term. Uh, so even though they went to the effort of, you know, making something on the back to make it look like a postcard, these are not postcards. If people really want to use them as postcards, send them to me. <laughs> yes, please. And it's got the the little place for the stamp on the back. And we, we should probably mention, too, that the artwork for this uh, was all done, um, as far as the art design of this package, was done by Ian Grant's son. And I can't remember his real name, but he goes by the name Ra, R-A, the Egyptian god of the sun. <laughs> I don't know why he picked that name. Yeah. But um, uh, he, he's taken a little bit of heat at times for some of the designs on the Rarities CDs over the years. But... Um, Got to give him credit for this one. I mean, I think he's done a great job putting this together, and it just—it's uh, a beautiful, it's a beautiful package of stuff. I don't know if this is down to the BBC having more money or whether his skills grew with time. Maybe a combination of both. But uh, this is as good as some of those rarities were bad. We have to be honest and say it. Uh, so um, I don't feel bad saying it because we're kind of complimenting the latest. <laughs> the curve is pointing the right way. Right. Right. And, and let's face it, I mean, those rarities things were more not, – not that they should have just uh, not given second, a thought to the packaging, but they were more about the songs and things included. And they, they did have kind of a thrown-together-for-the-fans type of feel, whereas these, these are much more presented as the work of – the great work of this band and more for the public at large. So maybe they spent more time on it because of that as well. But uh, yeah, great, great job on this, really great job. The, the color schemes and everything is beautiful. So uh, the book is, uh, like you mentioned, it's it, when I said liner notes, that's more like uh, uh, the sections written by Tony and Bruce are like the postscripts to the book. The book is 32 pages and it's hardcover and you, you can't call it sleeve notes, but it's got a long piece written by Tim Barr. And I didn't know who this was, so I tried to research. And I understand it's a Scottish journalist uh, and author who is a fan and has written about the band in the past. So uh, he also wrote a he also wrote a, a really great review of the Journey album when it came out. In fact, that the band was promoting that on their site when the album came out, and it was written by him. So perfect. Yeah, yeah. So he's definitely uh, an inside guy, I think, uh, in terms of uh, knowing the band and caring for the band and uh, being able to write about the band. You know, the stuff in that book. There's lots of facts I never knew. Uh, he has clearly spoken to the band members and include anecdotes, which I love, anecdotes and memories from these early shows. There's plenty of them, and uh, we might mention a couple of them in our discussion as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I mean, it's always great to get something new from Big Country, and obviously, when you're when you're mining that uh, that source for so long of the past, you really don't expect anything new to come out really anymore. But occasionally, you do get some nuggets and. Some yeah. of those nuggets are found in some of the quotes here and, and some cool things as well as on the CDs. So, and I really yeah. I, I also really like um, the band reminiscence. Like Bruce, uh, in his uh, short piece, he talks about the early 
sessions they did with Kid Jensen and the John Peel sessions. And I yeah. think uh, Tony Butler is thinking back to his time as a BBC clerk before becoming a professional musician. So that's <laughs> a, a really nice touch. It uh, it touches on really the early days. And I get the feeling that this book set really means something to them and has created a sense of nostalgia for them as well as for us. So that's that's perfect. And how about that cool little drawing on the back with the, from Mark Brzecki? Yeah, it's a great, really. It's a great piece of artwork. <laughs> He's really a good artist. Yeah, I've, I've heard reference to this uh, the artistry of Mark in the past. So it's an illustration showing a BBC broadcast truck standing outside a big country gig. And then across the road, the four members of the group are sitting in a punningly named pub called Made of Ale. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's very nice. Looking at CD1... It's the color, the blue color of the classic Crossing release. And some really cool stuff on here, some cool sessions that were done er very early with the band. We've got the David Jensen session first, 1982. And I am not incredibly familiar with who David Jensen is. I know you are more than I am. (laughs) I have not read the book recently. I should have done better homework for this episode, but I have not read the book recently. So (laughs) who, who who is David Jensen? David Jensen. He's known as Kid Jensen in uh, the UK. I think a lot of people know him by that name. Um, yeah, he uh, he was first known as a TV personality in the 70s by hosting pop shows on ITV. And then he went on to become a radio DJ on the then new BBC pop network called Radio One in 1976. And uh, ended up getting a high profile through a lot of regular appearances presenting on top of the pops, where he also struck up a friendship with John Peel. So that leads into the radio session thing that uh, came later. So uh, on the radio show, uh, he followed in the footsteps of people like exactly John Peel and Bob Harris and many others who Mm. were kind of known for championing a lot of acts who later went on to achieve huge commercial success like The Police, Gary Newman. Those were acts that Kid Jensen broke. And in the early 80s, which is the time we're talking about, uh, he had a mid-evening show, kind of dominated by what was then referred to as New Wave slash Indie Rock. But he also would feature interviews with mainstream acts like Duran Duran and uh, these things. So uh, in this setup, Big Country first appeared on radio as live guests on the David Jensen show way before the album was out. And uh, David Jensen was always very complimentary to Big Country. I'm proud to have them on. So um, actually, I can mention this. uh, These sessions have been released on CD before. I'm sitting, oh, okay. I'm sitting with a CD before me, simply called the Radio One Sessions. This oh, is, yeah, I have that. I didn't know that was the same thing. That, that's the same thing, the yellow and black stripe uh, CD. Yeah. yeah. Okay, all right. That, that's got eight tracks on it, and that is exactly the two first sessions on this uh, blue disc one of the BBC box set. So you, gotcha. have the, okay. you have the four David Jensen session, and you have the four John Peel, and that constitute this uh, yellow and black Radio One Sessions. So they have been out before. So it's kind of pleasing to see the material is the same. Nothing is missing. It's kind of complete both places. Curiously, the track listing is slightly different between the two, which is one of those things that makes my head spin. And which one is the correct one? It now needs to be <laughs> tracked down. But uh, yeah, the material is out there. So uh, that's um, it gives a good occasion of comparing the development of the band. So obviously you have the first sessions on the David Jensen show, they were recorded, and I have a date format, which I would guess is US, 8-12-82, which would be the 12th of August, 1982. 
and the John Peel sessions were recorded 3-9-83. So again, assuming U.S. format would be 9th of March, 83. So that's a gap of about a half year, seven months or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, that gives a unique chance of comparing the growth of the band and what is different. And um, the interesting bit is obviously the track Close Action, which was played in both uh, sessions. That, that's the one duplicate. So the first take from 82 is obviously pre-album, like all those four tracks. And it's slightly different. Like you have different uh, percussion in the opening bars and Mark hits some things that isn't on the yeah, album. Yeah, you get that China crash, like... Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> things like that you'll, you'll find them all across the song and it's really signaled from the first bar right there in the china crash uh, whereas the second one from the john peel session 83 is basically a live version of the album version the album yeah. arrangement so um, exactly. from that perspective i guess the first four are the most interesting but uh, they're both um, equally interesting for different reasons yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I, there's so much energy in these uh, recordings. And I, I like in the book, there's um, there's a cool section in the book where Bruce Watson is talking about these sessions from today. He's giving his recollections and his comments. It, it almost seems like he's writing as he's listening to them. I mean, just a couple things. Um, he says, I was surprised at the version of Heart and Soul and how fast the tempo was. Yeah. <laughs> also, also how low Stewart's voice was back in those days. And I, I, was, I, was, I was glad that he said that because – that always struck me too, and I, I always wondered: is that just me imagining it? But his voice on a lot, of, a lot of those early songs before the album was released, his voice often had this lower register tone to it. Then he says, and as he got older, his singing voice actually got higher albeit with a slight American twang, so he's kind of uh, hearkening to peace in our time there. But um, one of the things that is said in this is that David Jensen must have really loved Mark Brzecki because the drums are way up in the mix. It's almost like <laughs> it's almost like the journey the journey uh, thing because in, in the journey, the drums are way up there in the mix, and in these they are too, but I really like it. I mean, you hear all the intricacies of Mark's playing even back then, and it's just like every piece seems to almost have its own microphone attached to it and you can hear like every little thing that he's playing and it's uh right yeah it's great yeah and uh, these sessions were actually produced by john williams so uh i don't know who that is <laughs> but uh, that's the guy you have i know to... it's not i know it's not the john williams the star wars john williams well i wouldn't keep it past him <laughs> why not I, I but uh, the blame or credit for the drum sound goes to him Okay, so it's not it's not David Jensen's fault. He was just the presenter. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Well, yeah, it, it it's really cool though. It um, I'm, I'm looking at, at as I'm speaking, I'm looking through some of these comments from Bruce, and uh, he's saying things like he would never record guitars the way that they were recorded then. He would never do that nowadays, and it's uh, I don't know. It's just it's just really cool to I, I love it when artists are going back and listening to their old catalog and 
and giving feedback on it uh, as it's almost seemingly as they're listening to it again. And that's you get a lot of that from this book. But, um, yeah, the David Jensen sessions are are definitely the band early on building their building to up to a crescendo in, a, in some sense, I guess. And then the John Peel sessions, as you said, they they almost come even though it's it's just a sh- relatively short break between the recordings. You can tell that they're really more seasoned by the time they get to the John Peel sessions. And uh, probably a lot of people out there are familiar with who John Peel is. He was a guy who's he only died relatively recently, I believe, just a few years ago. Yeah. And he was always championing new music. And in fact, uh, my wife, Joni, who's a big White Stripes fan, was telling me that he was very responsible for the popularity of the White Stripes in the UK because he was such a big fan of the White Stripes and championing them. And, and he did that with Big Country. I mean, he, he's probably within Big Country circles, he's probably most famous for, for calling Stewart uh, Scotland's answer to Jimi Hendrix, which, which was nice. I, I think he said that when Stewart was still in the skids. But um, yeah, so the John Peel sessions, as you say, the arrangements are very much like the album, but there's something, there's just something really raw and, and powerful about them. And uh, I, I, I love them. I, I love the uh, A Thousand Stars, especially. And yeah, um, th- I love all of them, but th- th- I, I just love hearing that innocence and that take on the world kind of feel that comes through these these tunes and it's certainly there on the crossing album too but there's something to be said for kind of the rawness of these presentations yeah they're bashing them out they, they clearly know the songs inside out and um uh, as opposed to the album version, you don't have the studio production. You have the raw quality of the song, and they still pretty much make it come out sounding like the album version, just with that edge. Yeah. So, um, so thousand stars. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a riveting. It's really going, and uh, Power Man as well from the the John Peel. Just uh, yeah. to have such an epic song played slightly faster there's slightly more of an edge to it and more intense if you will in the in the build-up really 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 is good definitely and then we move to the live at the hammersmith palais in 1983 so can you tell us a little bit about the specifics of this concert and when it happened yeah because i damn sure can't (laughs) (laughs) you yeah you can make a stab at it (laughs) <laughs> but uh, this uh, this live performance was recorded for the long-running in-concert series, and uh, it really captures the band as up-and-coming chart-bound hopefuls, so to speak. Um, the, the album was out. The band is very exciting at this point, very clearly on the way up. The band knows it, the general audience knows it, and BBC knows it. So this must have been a fantastic time for the guys. I don't know exactly where this concert falls in terms of single releases, but I know they've had hits and uh, they are on the rise. They're, they're kind of the shit, if you will, right now. Yeah. The country is the shit. So uh, a really <laughs> exciting time for everybody who followed the band. And if anything, uh, I'm, uh, you get the same sense from the Hammersmith Palais recordings as you get for the Peel and, and Jensen recording. It's really rough. Uh, they played with the same intensity. It's just mm-hmm. not in a studio. It's on a live stage. And uh, just striking the note with uh, coming out with Balcony, which is uh, kind of like a 
Big Country Twilight soundtrack, but I love it. And it's so intense in this uh, live version. Yeah, it, I know. It's so intense. It's probably my favorite version of Balcony is the one that opens up um, the section here from Hammersmith Palais. general early live takes of songs before they settled is uh, very exciting for any band and definitely as well for big country so you have lost patrol they play it live and it's exactly the 10th song it uh, it was when i first heard it it's a very uneasy song and it has a mood build up and they play it without the one two three fours uh, later it became more of a let's go to the gig and have a bunch of beers and scream and shout and have a good time, jump up and down. To me, that clashes with some of the songs. Like for one reason, Chance is one of those songs. One, two, three, four. And here you have it before that became a habit. And right. it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it captures definitely the, the original source of the song uh, as it really was recorded and as it was thought of. But it, it became something else over time. So uh, I treasure these early recordings, if if only for that reason, that it's really the spirit of the song is still kept or it's fresh. It's it's uh, close to the original source. Yeah, I agree. And that's a good point about the one, two, three, four, because, yeah, you're, you're never going to hear another version of Lost Patrol without that. After that, after yeah. 1983 and maybe even in 1983, that trend developed. Who knows? I'm not sure exactly when it did, but um yeah, and, and that is a great thing. I always love hearing what are now classic songs when they're done the first few times, no matter what the band is. It's always fascinating to hear, to hear how the crowd reacts, to see to see how they react if, you, if you're lucky enough to have video of it. So, yeah, these are great, um, great pieces to have. And do you have, any, do you have any info as to what the actual set list of this show was or why the, uh, why the whole show was not – on here or what we're missing from that show i mean i wonder if the whole thing was i imagine the entire thing was recorded in the same manner that these tracks were yeah. so i'm wondering i'm wondering why they chose these versus it, others it yeah that's a good choice i think um the bbc recorded a lot of shows from a lot of bands and they would normally do a selection for a radio transmission mm-hmm. and um obviously that's the producer's call and that's just the producer's favorite at the time and uh, sometimes that's the part that is kept or it goes to the archives that's the one that was transmitted and that became the print so that might be what they have for all i know yeah um, so the clearly more songs than the six songs featured here were played but uh, these were likely the six songs aired over the radio so that might be why they are here yeah, and I am glad they included Balcony just for the rarity of it, and it is such a great-sounding version of it. And I wonder if this is the first time they played at the Hammersmith Palais. I imagine it probably is, and that is uh, that that makes me smile because I know Bruce Watson specifically is such a big Clash fan, and mm-hmm. he's often said that his favorite song of all time, not just favorite Clash song, but favorite song of all time, is the Clash's White Man, White, White Man and Hammersmith yeah. Palais. So <laughs> I, I bet he had a big uh, a big smile on his face when they were playing this show and just the, the, the notion, you know, that they were playing at this place that was made famous in that in that Clash song that must have meant something to him. Oh, so, definitely. Yeah. Again, so many cool things to, to about these early things that you can look back on and, and feel really nostalgic about and treasure. 
So that's disc one, a very worthy addition to this box set, if I do say so myself. And then we move on to the red sleeve. Um, Another very disc, worthy addition to the box set. Yeah, all of them are, really. Uh, disc two, um, we've got the Reading Festival in 1983. Uh, I think at this point, you know, we're still in the crossing tour, obviously, but we're more toward the end of the crossing tour, at least at least for the first two selections on this disc the reading festival 1983 uh what are the what are the historical significant what's the historical significance of that what are some of the, the the dates and those types of things surrounding that show yeah uh, just like uh, hammersmith play this was also recorded for the in concert series uh, captures the band more or less at the same stage as that previous show they are still up and coming uh but this is a fairly big uh, stage and uh, the Reading Rock Festival. This was uh, uh, one of the premier festivals in the UK at the time. And in 1983, it happened from August 26th through 28th and Big Country performed on the first day alongside the Stranglers, Man, Hanoi Rocks, Palace, Steel Pulse, Pendragon, lots of others. Uh, Hanoi Rocks, wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I thought. But uh, – <laughs> Big Country were billed as special guests on this day, which normally indicates an opening band slot. But uh, on a mm. festival, this obviously means something different and thankfully better, as it means a featured band to the main attraction or something like that. So Big Country actually came on second to last before the Stranglers and did fantastic, even coming back for one encore. Wow. Uh, but this was a fairly special night in many ways uh, especially in the way that this was a tense night and uh, the audience was uneasy it was one of those drinking audience that we uh, spoke about in the past and the band Steel Pulse was the one who went on right before Big Country and they were actually bottled off after just one and a half songs <laughs> so they played one song stopped gave a warning to the audience you know please stop throwing these bottles and or which, we, of, which of course always works yeah that always works so half a song later they had to stop and their warning wasn't <laughs> heeded so they stormed off and never returned and that was the setting where big country came to the stage and it was still tense from earlier uh there was no huffs as of now uh but they came on there still was the occasional bottle so Stuart also stopped uh, almost mid-song from what I understand and um, talked to the audience he didn't warn the audience so that was a slightly different approach that oi you know what's what's going on here YouTube quit flinging bottles uh, it was verge on the verge of getting out of hand but uh, Big Country carried on to the end and they actually managed to calm down the bottle throwing and they won the audience over which is kind of a turning point I think uh, for them in the UK on a wider scale from some reports I've seen uh, from people who were there they said well it's kind of hard to dance to the music and chuck bottles at the same time and most people were really getting into the music so people <laughs> were dancing and getting into it and the mood was spreading and you can just imagine the guys from stage sending off a really cool vibe you have Tony they're all smiles and dancing and you have Bruce showing off his hot legs and <laughs> and his <laughs> uh, his stern look and, and st it's just a very very unique band in that regard so they won them over but uh, if you listen to the songs included here we only have four but still um, keeping the setting in mind you if you are aware of it you can actually pick up the mood of the evening 
it is a little tense. Mm. Uh, and that carries over into some of the songs. So you have, for example, The Storm is one of the selections, which is very interesting. can see how Harvest Home is a dancer, Close Action, sure, that's a dancer, and Feels of Fired, being the other three songs. And then you have The Storm, which people, you can hear them singing in the background. I think they had them one over by that point. So uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a very unique uh, sort of place and a good turning point. And The Night was also known for uh, The Stranglers pulled a prank on them. And this is actually mentioned by Bruce uh, in the book. Where Bruce says that uh, that's the show where the Stranglers blew them up. They thought uh, they thought they should have something extra during Fields of Fire, so they helped the big country crew set up for it in terms of pyros and stuff. So the <laughs> the roadies warned them that at the end that's of the right. song you might want to step at least eight feet to back from the microphones. So they did that, but even so, they miscalculated the amount of explosive they needed. So <laughs> they moved back the eight feet, but then it went off with a boom, and they ran for cover behind the amps. And the pyros were so ferocious, they all got burned. So uh, it was like a napalm attack. So they spent the Strangler set sitting in the first tent with, uh, yeah, faces and hands covered in Vaseline, basically. <laughs> so a very, I wish there was a photo of that somewhere. I, w- I wish there was a photo of, of Big Country with the with the kiss bombs going off, that would be an amazing photo to see. Oh wow, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah but, but uh, I'm just I'm just glad it took some steps back. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, you you figured they would have warned, given them a better warning than you might want to step back a little bit. Just tell them to get the hell out of the way. Yeah, but really. Uh, yeah, that that's a great description um, of the show. I, you make me want to go back and listen to that now with all this in mind. But. Um, yeah, that's that's fantastic. And sometimes those types of atmospheres really lend themselves to the best shows, and that probably is the case here. So, yeah, so Wembley Stadium, was this when they were opening for Queen? No, they were actually supporting Elton John. Elton John, okay, got it. But it was actually more like a Radio 1 Summer of 84 concert. So the full lineup of the day, as it turned out, was Wang Chung. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, I actually Nick, saw Wang Chung once. Yeah, I, I saw them open for the cars once back in 1985, oh, really? something like that. So, yeah. Okay, so you're the Wang Chung expert on this show. Yeah, uh, so, Wang, so Wang Chung, Nick Kershaw, Cool and the Gang, Big Country, and Elton John was the full lineup for this Radio 1 Summer of 84 concert. So, actually, Big Country was a last-minute replacement. Uh it was supposed to be Paul Young. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's this one, yeah. It's now in the studio. I'm, I'm, I can't lie about this too much, really. It's a, it's a caravan out the back of Wembley. It's Stuart Adamson from Big Country. Hello. Welcome. Hello. I mean, a bit of a surprise this must have been for you today. Well, it's just as much a surprise for us as it is for everyone else. I mean, we found out uh, what we were asked last night at about half past 12 at night if we, we could manage to turn up and do it. And, in fact, uh, our gear was already was three minutes away from being on the, the boat to Sweden before uh, 
It got called back. So it been three minutes, really. Yep. So it was actually it was that between time. customs and the boat. Good. Before it got called back. Just in case people have joined us, I suppose, and don't realise why why you had this uh, this last minute uh, summons to Wembley, it's because, of course, the very bad news that Paul Young has had to withdraw from today's show on on doctor's orders, which is, I suppose, never nice, really, from someone in your no, situation. No, isn't he? I'd, you know. I'd like to wish him all the best and hope that he gets well soon and help me take it easy for a couple of weeks, because he's done a lot of work in the past year or so, you know. Absolutely. Well, hopefully we should be speaking to Paul a little later on, but we're, we're trying to put that phone call through now, so we'll, we'll let you know what happened, in fact. But, um, so tell me, what were you about to be doing then? What would you have been doing today if the, uh, if the three minutes, uh, if the call had come three minutes later? Well, today, uh, my wife Sandra and I and son Callum would have been back in their bags ready to go away to record the next album which we were actually meant to be starting tomorrow and uh, so we to, had to put it back today but it's I think it's nice that people thought of asking us to play and it's that's a good chance for us to, us to go out and it's like uh, the last time we'll ever play this set anyway so it's quite a good way to, way to finish it off. I bet you didn't realise you were going to be playing the set once more there did you? No we didn't we, <laughs> we, uh, we played it in Holland a few weeks ago and thought well that's it that's that finished and we've been doing a uh, lot of new songs and stuff since then and uh, it's just a matter of sort of thinking back again three weeks and trying to remember all the chords. So you haven't been rehearsing there for this No, we series. haven't. Obviously, we haven't <laughs> been rehearsing for anything. So we just have to go out and give it a, a good old thrash. Now, it's been a while since you played in this country, isn't it? It has been. The last time we played here was in uh, at the, the very beginning of January in mm -hmm. Glasgow. So it has been quite a while. And since that time, we've been uh, touring America and touring Japan. Unfortunately, it's one of these things if, if people start buying your records abroad, it's a bit unfair not to go there and play and give people a, a chance to see uh, the songs in a live situation so you have to go and do that as How's well. How's that been going there? Have you been playing some, some places as big as this? I mean 72,000 people out there today. Yeah, that's, that's quite a few. No, not quite as big as this but we've, we're, uh, it's, uh, it's like a whole different ballgame in America. You play sort of bigger places anyway. and mm. uh, It doesn't bother you though? The, no, the, the, the I, th I think it's far more embarrassing having to sing in front of three or four folk at a party than it is <laughs> as to go out and do something like this. You know? I suppose it. Let's talk about the new album a bit. Have you? Is it all written now? In fact, I mean, you're just going to record yeah, it. Yeah, it's like 95% written. It's a case of recording all, all the songs we have and then um, just embellishing them a bit and uh, seeing how it goes from there. Really. Well, this last year has been so successful. Obviously, you, you, you must feel you've got a lot to to live up to really, with this new um, material. No, really, it's just a matter of write, writing some more songs, and I think uh, especially for a group like, like us, we do have a, like a sort of communal aim between us anyway and it's, mm. it's a matter of trying to uh, stretch yourself that a little bit further and try to do things where people don't say oh they're just reiterating past material and it's, it's a matter of trying to do that. So it'll be different but the same you're saying? Hopefully yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the same big country sound but perhaps a little, taken a little bit further. Yeah I think so. I think so. I think over the past year we've, it was like uh, the past, the last, the first year was like learning the songs and then, then going out and doing them and this year I think We've learned a lot more about each other as, as musicians and, and what we, we're interested in. And that must be incredibly group. important, though, obviously, at this stage of a band's life, you know, getting to know each other on stage and, and when you're playing Yeah, the it is, to, to learn how to, um, how to work off other musicians rather than just everybody's playing a set piece all the time. We have started improvising a lot more over the past three or four months than, than, we, than we used to do. And does that then get incorporated into the new material that you, you write, perhaps? You yeah, know? I think so. I think... When you you learn to have that sort of fluidity be between the musicians, then then that does carry forth in, into any new stuff that I'll be writing or, or that we'll be writing between ourselves. Well, look, good like this afternoon. You're well, obviously thanks. looking forward to it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I should think you will be actually. The audience are great. They're really enjoying themselves. I think out there. 
have a good time too. Stia. Let's hope so. Don't forget Elton John will be on later. Let me just tell you that unfortunately, as you may or may not know, Paul Young couldn't be with us today. He's got a... He's got a throat infection, so please can we all say, get well soon, Paul. I love you more than my own parents. And I'd like to, I'd like to welcome on stage, and I'd like you to give them a really warm round of applause. Let me just tell you, let me just tell you that they were actually on a ferry and they've stepped in at the last moment. So live on Radio 1 and live at Wembley, would you please welcome Big Country! Elton John was the one who suggested them and he was so keen on getting them that he offered to rent gear for them to come and get them in. <laughs> and uh, when they came, Elton John was, he couldn't have been more courteous. He came into the dressing rooms, told stories, had laughs with them and encouraged them. So this was on two days notice. They came into this huge setup uh, at Wembley Stadium, which uh, clearly their biggest uh, show to date and uh, this captures them in a bit of a different mindset than before this is clearly a multi-platinum selling band at this point the crossing is huge it's gigantic we know all the hits they had from that album so uh they if you ask me they were playing alongside elton john they were not opening for elton john so that mm. was a huge name to have on uh, on that gig and uh, you know it being the Radio 1 kind of Summer of 84 show, so obviously they were there recording. So thankfully we have a taste again here <laughs> for our songs. It's kind of like crumbs. We, let's throw throw them a bone, but it's better than oh, nothing. The, yeah, this show, I would love to hear the entire show. And yeah. usually, for, usually for, for a lot of these shows, I feel like as great as they all are, if you've heard one, you've heard them all, you know, so I don't necessarily have to have five shows from the crossing tour but this is an exception because these four songs here just sound so so good and and so full of intensity and life and sparkle and, and that's that's really amazing that this is that show where they thought they were actually finished because you you would think that being dragged back to do another show you might be experiencing that sort of tiredness and them ready to end and stop and maybe not quite the intensity levels that that you might want or expect from the band who probably had already been on the road for a long time and uh you would never notice that from this i mean th this seems like the energy of almost the energy of an opening night of a tour it's so powerful yes it is and you're spot on with your description because they were not yet planning to go to stockholm but they were gearing up for that so this was supposed to be their home time after the crossing tour before the recording of steel town and uh, it says so in this book that Bruce and Stuart were so homesick that right after they were done, they went, went straight back home to the Firmland. And uh, <laughs> that evening, you know, they were kind of toasting their uh, a good show in the bar as Elton John was finishing up his last encore. So, <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> according to it, obviously that's a story. But uh, yeah, they uh, they were homesick at that point, and they were going into Steel Town with that uh, feeling. So that makes sense in terms of what we talked about in a previous episode, that the people left the sessions to go home. They were so homesick. They'd been so away from home uh, with touring. For me personally, I think those that selection of songs from the Wembley Stadium gig is the standout on this disc. And as a, as a whole, probably the standout on the whole album or the whole collection for me Um there's just something about the power of those songs performed, especially Pearl Man. I, to me, Pearl Man is a song that I've always loved, but sometimes 
I just feel like here comes Pearl Man. You know, it's really long and it goes on for a long time. It's great when you're really in the mood for it. But occasionally, after hearing it for so many years, I kind of zone out a little bit on it at times until it gets to certain portions of the song. But on this one, this version of Pearl Man, just when I first heard it, I, I was cranking it up in the car and um, it just made the hair on the back of my, my neck stand up. It was just it's just an incredibly powerful version. The, the way the guitars sound, the way the drums sound. Just everything about it is just intense. This has to be my favorite version of Pearl Man that I've ever heard. So then we go, we, we take sort of a jump here, which is a little bit odd, but we jump from that period in, in of the Crossing Tour and the band really just getting on a roll to what many would consider the beginning of the end <laughs> when they we go to 1988. And um, still, though, this is a this live from the Soviet embassy. And I, I'd heard this before. I had a bootleg of it. And um, it's great to have it here in its entirety. It, it's not... It, it's really more interesting from the standpoint of what it was and the and the the moment. I mean, the band, the first band that ever played in this in the Soviet embassy, about to become the first uh, rock band or from a uh, Western rock band to play in in the Soviet Union. Um, I think they were the first. I don't know, but I know they were among the first. So it's really a, a kind of a you, you can say what you want about the peace in our time album and the whole campaign around it. But it really strikes me as a good PR campaign, if nothing else, to have the band launch the album at the Soviet embassy and be the first band to ever play there. I mean, that's pretty cool. I think, um, I, I don't know if you've, if you remember, I'm sure you've seen it, but that documentary that chronicled the band's trip to the Soviet union, they show some video footage of this performance in that. And it really is kind of a weird setting. I mean, people are into them and they're kind of, you know, excited and, and glad to see them. But there's also a feeling that big country is playing there, but it's not really their crowd that they're playing to. I mean, they're playing to all these people who work in the Soviet embassy and they might think, oh, this is pretty good. But um, it, it just doesn't have that magical feel. You can, it almost seems like the band is sort of wondering, too, as they're playing. Is it like they're wondering, is this the right move? Are we doing the right thing here? And of course, this is this is also the the um, debut of those wonderful singing ladies that joined the band and marred so many of their peace in our time performances. <laughs> so we've got them doing their dances in the background to songs like Thousand Yard Stare and adding their their vocals to these other tunes. But um, I don't know. The other peace in our time era shows that I've heard and certainly the one on this set are much better to me as far as just quality and and the the performances and the intensity of the performances and that type of thing but this is interesting just i think for me from a historical perspective looking at the band's timeline it's called river of hope The most enlightening thing to me about this performance was that the BBC were somehow involved. So um, I did not realize that they were involved in transmitting this event live. Mm. But uh, but I'm glad they were because that means we have it in good quality. Uh, so uh, someone made a 
comment once that this is actually as it was transmitted from the embassy. That became like the first sort of foreign soil thing from the Russian embassy to to the world, and that someone made a big deal of that. And uh, people might think, what's the big deal? But then you didn't live in the 80s and know how closed up the Soviets were and how yeah, exactly. things were. That, that was a big deal. Back then, that was really permeating the news and the culture was East-West relations and glasnost. And yeah. and um, even just a few years prior to that, the threat of impending nuclear obliteration. So, oh, definitely. Which, which hadn't totally gone away. So, I mean, I mean, this was a big deal. I'm actually surprised that more of it wasn't made here in America Um I guess maybe they viewed it viewed it just like uh, some UK band playing at the Soviet embassy, but still, that would have. I'm surprised I never heard anything about it until a few years after the fact. A rock band playing Western music inside the Soviet embassy in London. Peace in our time was the message thumping out from big country who will soon be touring the Soviet Union. The theme of peace was inspired by the summits between Gorbachev and Reagan. Uh, the first time ever I uh, Western bands played in the, the Soviet Embassy in London. And uh, the reason we're, we're playing here is because uh, it's the first time in Moscow that a, a band has been promoted by uh, people who work out with the state uh, entertainment organizations. So it's quite a big deal for them. And they wanted to, to market uh, as much as we did. I think they're just as keen on uh, looking for world peace as anyone else is. People from the world of pop mixed with diplomats in this new rock and roll glasnost. I think we're breaking new ground altogether. Are you a fan of Big Country yourself? I am. And now I hope I will be much more addicted to their music. The group's Russian tour will include towns and cities which have never seen live Western rock. Looking on tonight, two Russian youngsters, the sons of diplomats, obviously enjoying the show. So uh, this day at the embassy was uh, the 21st of September 1988. That was just one week before they went to Moscow to play these shows there, which of course means that, as you mentioned, unfortunately, the singing ladies are in tow. They're standing there, not at the back, but in the front uh, of the embassy, doing their full back-and-forth art movements, looking looking like they're walking in big strides, but of course, standing still musically and otherwise. So... um, if I have to comment on the songs, uh, they clearly don't have an audience to feed off of. It's employees of the embassy, it's uh, journalists, it's it's PR people. I don't, I'm not sure if fans were even there. But uh, I have to say, a song like Look Away, as much as I rag on that song, um, it sounds great here. Uh, just the sound is much warmer and clearer without all that reverb. And I can appreciate that. Uh, not that I'm still particularly needing to hear the song but if i should ever have the urge i might actually reach for this particular version rather than the version on the seer <laughs> what is interesting to hear that the sound of the performance it's like a it's very much a room sound it's not the kind of performance that you would uh, typically hear from a rock band they usually don't set up in a in a room at an embassy or an office building basically so you, you get that sort of ambiance from the from the sound and it does have something different about it uh, there's there's no doubt about it there's yeah, or something that sets it apart from other performances because it has that kind of dead in room sound to it that it kind of works in a, in some ways. In some ways, and also the intro to Thirteen Valleys benefits from that. It's really much better when replicated live here than 
on the studio version. It sounds yeah. really organic, but it, that's bits and pieces. I mean, overall, you know, it's it's not memorable for the performance. It's more memorable for the occasion. And then we move on to disc three, which is completely piece in our time related. And live at Hammersmith Odeon, 1989. Now, I remember hearing bits of this concert for the first time, and it was when it was broadcast on the radio, believe it or not, here in America. It was, uh, I think, I think part of the King Biscuit Flower Hour or something like that. Um, yeah. I'm not, I think that's what it was. Okay. And it was an edited version of the show, but I remember I recorded it on cassette, and I listened to it all the time. I was, I, I found out by accident that it was coming on, and I recorded it. Now, the, the broadcast version did not have a lot of these tracks, certainly some of these tracks. And then years later, as we all know, they released a CD version of this that also did not have some of these tracks. And so when I when I heard that this concert was going to be on the box set, I didn't really even give it a second thought. I felt like I'd heard all this before. It's an interesting performance. Parts of it I like. Some things about it I don't, namely the the keyboards. <laughs> but I don't believe they're, the singing ladies are on this um, – uh, are, are on the tour at this point, so that's a good thing. But we still have, we still have those Josh Phillips in-your-face keyboards that that really kind of take away from some of these tunes. But anyway, when I did see the track listing of this, I have to say that when I saw that East of Eden was on the set list, I thought, oh well, that's interesting because I'd never heard that version of East of Eden. In fact, I had totally forgotten that they had played that. And then I was reminded that I I remember hearing that they played that on this show and on this tour back in back in those days and I remember thinking at the time wow it would be cool to hear East of Eden done in the peace in our time era I can't even imagine what that would sound like and sure enough here we, we have it and I've got to say um, of all of the uh, of all the tracks on this entire box set this version of East of Eden is is the one that really I go back to the most because it's it's something I never expected to hear and it's something so different than what I would have expected to hear. I mean, I just love this version of East of Eden. If you're a member of our Facebook page, you might have seen a post I made about it a while back talking about this song. But I just love the way that this is performed here. It, it does have the Josh Phillips keyboards in the beginning. And I still don't really like the tone of those keyboards and the, the overall sound of them. But there's something about the overall vibe of this version of the song that just absolutely works for me. It's it's. It's a much um, the arrangement is much more sparse, and maybe this kind of will point, or maybe this kind of points a little bit to what the band wanted from Steel Town. I still don't want anything taken away from Steel Town. Don't get me wrong, but this is kind of a rare glimpse into hearing a song from Steel Town done in a way where there's a lot of space in it. It's not cluttered. There's not a lot of there's not too much instrumentation happening. And um, just something about the way Stuart sings this song, too. He, he changes the melodies in some of the parts, and uh, especially on the chorus. It's just a beautiful version of the song, and Stewart's guitar playing too really 
shines incredibly on this version. Um, the arrangement is a little different than the album. There's always like that when when bands will take the time to make a, a song that you're very familiar with and and tweak it a little bit or add some some flourishes to it from an in, from an arrangement perspective, and they've done that here. So th- there are some really interesting uh, interesting tunes on this. We also get um, Restless Natives, which I think was on that CD release. I can't quite remember, but no, it's interesting. It wasn't. Okay, good. I, I was going to say, I wasn't sure, but it's interesting, again, to hear the Peace in Our Time era band, I guess, do that do that version. And this is certainly not my favorite period in the band's history. I think most big country fans would say that, um, it, both recorded works and live works. I mean, overall, I certainly didn't like the keyboard element that was going on around this time. But there's some places where it, it's really kind of a breath of fresh air after hearing the band for so many years do the traditional guitar based drum stuff. I mean, even just a shadow here, I think works with the keyboards there. There is kind of a Bruce Hornsby type of cheesy, maybe bordering cheesiness feel to some of it, some of it, but um, I don't know. I like it. I, I like the, the cleanness of the production on this live performance. And there's just something, uh, just something really interesting about it. This, this, this is not necessarily my favorite performance. If you had to say, is this the best big country performance on this box set? I, I, I probably have to go back to the Wembley Stadium one, but this is the one that I'm most interested in listening to because there are so many things on here that are refreshing to me and things that I haven't heard millions of times. So I really like this disc quite a bit. So the one disc that I thought I would probably not really listen to or give much time to turns out to have been the one that I've given the most time to, especially East of Eden. That's very interesting because uh, I, like you, thought this is a CD I'm not going to reach particularly much for, but unlike you, that has held true. (laughs) (laughs) And that's uh, not because I don't care for the content. Uh, It's basically because uh, I've already lived with this show for a long while in a shorter form. Mm. So so like you mentioned, there was a 10-track CD from the show Previously released as BBC Live in Concert with only 10 tracks, uh, but we got more now. But frustratingly, we still don't have all the songs. There's yes. one There's one song missing that between the two discs, if they included Chance and took away another one that is on this early BBC Live in Concert one, we would between the discs have the complete show. Mm-hmm. But, but also, you know, obviously it would be nice to have every song on one disc, but that's a time issue. I think the disc as it is now is actually full. You can't fit another song on it, so really? I have to wow. accept that. You know, either add another disc or you know this was the selection. But uh, I would have hoped and expected that between the two discs we would have had the full show, but that's not the case. Uh, so um, the track listings vary obviously between the releases. So compared with the first standalone release, the BBC box set adds "Look Away," "Broken Heart," "Just a Shadow," "Thousand Yard Stare." East of Eden, Restless Natives, Track of My Tears. So that's seven songs. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. Seven songs we haven't officially seen released before. So uh, unfortunately, compared to the previous release, We Are Missing River of Hope in a Big Country and I Walk the Hill. Uh, And it's a little bit annoying. Um, I, I would have hoped that the BBC box set would have made a live in concert disc redundant. Uh, 
but we talked about disk space. It it couldn't be done, so I still need to keep my old BBC concert uh, disk out. Uh, but the omissions are interesting because you have stairs like in a big country, which didn't make the cut. And that's like, oh, really? Uh, and at first, I would have thought, well, maybe in a big country is featured elsewhere. So you kind of have it already. So it makes sense. And River of Hope is kind of included in the Soviet embassy gig just before. So that makes sense. But then you have I Walk the Hill, which isn't featured anywhere. And that's such a, I call it a live rarity. They played it a little bit uh, on the Seer tour and a little bit piece in our time i don't know if it was a mainstay but it would appear uh so that would have been nice to include in favor of i think there are songs here that are featured for the fourth time thus far or something like that third or fourth time uh, on this box set so that's that's something to think about in, in terms of choices to make and maybe i would have done a different choice but uh, i do like hearing new takes on old songs uh, sometimes uh, we have songs like The Seer, which has a horrid intro. <laughs> then <laughs> I just can't get past it. And then yeah, it's awful. <laughs> yeah. So when we talked about... Uh, the album The Seer, we introduced each album track discussion with the track in question. So uh, to mix it up a bit, Tom was going through live tracks and he picked this live track with that intro. And I said, really, we can't use that. It's horrible. Please find a different live version, a good live version. And Tom said, oh, OK, I'll, I'll see if I can find something. And then I got a new version and it goes boom into the song. Sounds great. And oh, that's perfect. That's much better. Uh, where do you have this from? And oh, actually, it's the same song, but I just skipped the intro. So, <laughs> so that's a bit funny, but it also tells something about uh, how there's a lot of good performances here. Yeah, but, there really are. But bad intros sometimes start it off. You get off on the wrong foot. And uh, it, it gets harder to take in the song just because of a bad intro. And it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. So it's it's a lesson to be learned there for, for me and for all you keyboard naysayers who are naysayers along with me. Uh, <laughs> there's... Uh, there, there are good performances here, and there are subtle touches on keyboards that are good. There are also some hard examples. And I would agree with you that East of Eden is one of the better examples, but uh, I I wouldn't go as far as to say that this is uh, something I reach for. <laughs> it's um, I still call it a marred version because of that, but it's definitely not marred like the opening to the Seer is marred. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, to me, though, it's just it's just such a... It was so unexpected for me to hear the song and hear it done that way that I just can't get over hearing it. I mean, at this point in my big country fandom and probably in most people's big country fandom, you're probably not expecting to hear anything new anymore. That's at least you may hear a show that you've never heard before, but you're not expecting to hear anything that really grabs your attention. That's something that you yeah. really have never heard something in a particular format. So that's kind of how I viewed East of Eden. It's it's uh, it's almost dreamlike in in the fact that it's so different and so interesting to me. But uh, but yeah, Josh Josh Phillips was definitely not the right choice, uh, in my opinion, uh, as a keyboard player. The way that he played the keyboards, especially um, the sounds that he used, if he would have used kind of the more 
just as padding type of approach rather than almost being a lead instrument, yes. which he which he is you know, way out there in the in the in the mix, like right right in your face. And uh, we we've talked about that before. We'll probably never be able to get him on the show. I would like to get him on the show <laughs> at some point, but. And so that brings us to the thing that I was looking forward to the most, even though I had most of this stuff as well already, but some of that I did not have. And that is the, the fabulous DVD that came with this set. And um, tons of tons of good stuff on here. For me, I, I, we don't have time to talk about all of this stuff. We're, we're kind of coming toward the last phase of this show, so we're not going to talk about every little performance. But I guess if, if you could break it down, we would have a lot of these Top of the Pops performances where they basically came on and lip synced. And those are certainly the, the least interesting ones for me. I, I don't think I've ever really watched one of them all the way through because I just find it so boring to watch. And I know the band had to do it. I know that was what was required of them. And, and they, when you had a hit and you got on top of the pops in the UK, that was a great thing for you as a band or an artist. So they had to play that game, but there's just nothing more boring to me than watching a band come out with a, with a studio audience full of plants and lip sync their song. And it just looks so bad and big country. We're not very good at lip syncing and, I'm sure Stuart would be the first to admit that. I mean, you could tell that he just wasn't into it. Um, I remember it, my old band that I used to have in college, once uh, someone in the television production class wanted to make a video of us, and we had to lip sync one of our songs, and it was the most embarrassing <laughs> feeling. It just I just felt like such a complete idiot you know, trying to lip sync this song. And I, I still have the video, actually. And if you go back and look at it, there were times where the the vocals on the track are me actually yelling and I'm barely opening my mouth. I just felt so self-conscious. So I know that Stuart was was a similar mindset where he was self-conscious about those things, whether it was acting in videos or whether it was lip syncing. So the band just never looked comfortable doing that. And yeah, who, who cared really? So think, we, we've got. I, I yeah, think, go ahead. I think even Tony struggled to smile during those lip syncings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they were they were jumping around and dancing around, but uh, yeah, it's just. I, it's it's fine to have them on here, but for me the draw is the concert stuff, and I would much rather have nothing but concert footage. But luckily, at least for me, we do have a couple of well, all of them on here are great. I think um, we've got the Septon Park show. What what can you tell me about the Septon Park show as far as the specifics, the dates, that kind of thing? Septon Park, that's uh, that's in Liverpool, and that was uh, on the second of July, nineteen eighty three. And that's uh, once again another show from the Crossing Tour. Uh, we talked about them before. Uh, I don't know if I have enough differentiating comments to make here compared to the other ones. This right. was kind of as the album unfolded, as uh, single after single became a hit. The band was riding the wave and the wave was pointing upwards. So it captures them really in the same uh, frame of mind as the Hammersmith Palais and uh, and the Reading Festival. So obviously here we have a video example of that tour and that time. So that's good. Uh, I'm kind of thinking, wouldn't it be good to have the video footage from Reading, from Wembley, from Hammersmith? Yeah. We, we, we kind of have this one. So I don't know if that's a conscious thing to give us as much material as possible, or if these other things actually exist and uh, we got them in audio only. Yeah, I doubt that some of those exist. I mean, the Wembley show, maybe, but um, I've never heard of it or seen it. And like I said, um, as someone who got into the big country bootleg uh, 
business, I guess you could say, <laughs> not really a business, but just collecting um, years and years ago. This is one of the first ones that I, that I got. It was bad quality, so it's great to get a really fantastic quality version of it. The one odd thing about the show is that it's in this strange place where the stage is set up so far away from the from the audience. It's very bizarre, and there's a little catwalk that goes out, um, and it actually – I was just watching this before we recorded the show, and toward the end – actually, at the end of the show on Fields of Fire, both Bruce and Stuart walk out on this little narrow catwalk that extends out more toward the audience, but it is over this moat, and it's really high up. So it's really kind of strange. I mean, there's like, if they would have tripped and fallen, um, it might have been the end. have been the end of them because it was it was high enough up, and I think there was water underneath it. But it was just kind of strange. So, one of the weirdest stage setups I think I've ever seen. <laughs> but um, a great performance nonetheless. And you've got Big Country playing there with uh, when Stewart and both Stewart and Tony were wearing those those funny uh, pants that they used to get some grief over that were. Just like ankle above, just came down to just below the uh, the calf of their legs, so their their shins were showing, and they had those funny shoes, and they were jumping around. But um, <laughs> yeah, kind of a funny fashion moment for the band, but a great show. And then the next one is one that to me is is the one that really made this this DVD you know, totally worth it, and that is the Edinburgh Playhouse, 1984. Now I know some of you have this on um, on have had this on bootleg for years. I never had it. I I had seen some clips from it. Um, I had heard some audio from it, but I never got a hold of this video. So for me, getting this was really awesome. Just even the look of the stage is kind of that dark steel town look, and the way the band is dressed, and there's so many great moments on this. And to hear them do where the rose is sown. Um, mm you know, from that time period is fantastic. And of course they have the, this is a new year's Eve show too. So they have the moment where they stop the set and it's kind of an interesting moment. It's kind of a funny moment. Um, they're playing where the rose is sown. They get to the end of it, which is my favorite part when they play this live where they start to race back and forth across the stage. And at some, at some point Stewart just stops playing. Bruce, keeps playing a little bit and then he looks at Stuart and stops and both Bruce and Stuart walk off stage leaving Tony to play along with Mark and I think they're kind of wondering obviously they knew that midnight must have been approaching which is why Stuart stopped the song but you can tell that Tony and Mark don't really know exactly what's happening here and then Stuart comes back with a bottle of champagne and Tony and Mark just keep playing and end where the rose is sown and then you can hear Mark start to go into come back to me he starts to play the beginning of come back to me because that's the next song on the set list and Stewart's holding the champagne, and he just looks over, looks at Mark behind him, and he just shakes his head, no, no. And Mark stops, and then they go into the the New Year's Eve stuff. They take the champagne out. They spray the crowd with the champagne. And, and then they go into the the great celebratory New Year's song known as Come Back to Me, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting. It's like, Happy New Year, everybody. Now let's play one of the most depressing songs we've ever written. And so they, they, they launch into Come Back to Me, which really takes the mood down. But then they go into A Thousand Stars, which brings the mood back up. And I wonder if they should have just gone into that there anyway. But uh, anyway, it's a great it's a great show. Fantastic show. Yeah. Portion of the show. Not the whole thing, obviously, but um, some great set pieces there. I'm glad we got one thing from a Steel Town tour. And uh, yeah. this is a comment of mine generally that the Steel Town tour just proves elusive. We have tons of material from The Crossing. 
we actually have quite a bit from the Seer too, especially with all the Rock Palast uh, releases that we have on DVD and other shows. Uh, obviously, the New York show at the Pier was released uh, as an official release at the time. And uh, just across what's available out there in terms of sharing shows amongst fans and stuff, the Steel Town Tour is more elusive than the Crossing Tour and the Seer Tour. And I don't know why that is, and it kind of comes back on this box set, I think. And uh, the gap between the Crossing Tour and the Peace in Our Time Tour on the audio CDs is notable. Uh, they're skipping not just one tour, but two tours. Of course, one of those tours is the Steel Town Tour. So um, I think it's it's great to have this uh, Edinburgh show here. It's not the full thing, uh, evidently, but it's quite a bit chunk of it. It's the second biggest chunk on the DVD. Uh, and um, so, so that's one thing that is actually a, a thing for me, that what... Uh, What's the big deal with the secrecy of the Sealtown tour? I mean, the band were firing on all cylinders. They were kind of peaking popularity-wise, I would say, even though the album didn't spawn hit singles. I think they started taking the hits from that on the following album and tours. I think at this tour, they were still sort of full force from The Crossing, and the album did sort of do immediate business, if not long-term business, for a while. So uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things. And then we get to... I know a lot of people love this show, and rightly so. It's one of the one of the greatest shows I think the band has ever committed to video, and that's the Reading the Reading Hexagon gig in 1986. And um, what a powerful opening! First of all, opening with Wonderland, then into Where the Rose is Sown, then into Rem- Remembrance Day. And I don't know if that's the actual track listing because I know what they used to do back then is they would go into Wonderland, Where the Rose is Sown. And, um, well, actually, it must be because I was going to say Fields of Fire, but that's already included on here toward the end. So you talk about a one-two punch. That's a one-two-three punch. That's pretty epic. I mean, to go into those three tunes without really any break, they just launch into those three back-to-back-to-back. And uh, that really sets the stage for this show. This This is another show where band is in top form. I think the Seer Tour is really well regarded among fans, both the Seer Live in New York video and this one are, are some of the, the fa- maybe two of the favorites of fans as far as big country live performances. And um, there, there's a really, the, the band at this point has a really diverse catalog. They've got three albums and they've got a lot of different material on those three albums. And it's interesting to hear them pick and choose from it. Um, we don't get much from uh, Steel Town, unfortunately, on this. We only get the one tune, Where the Rose is Sown. But uh, the stuff they do from the Seer, just as it is on the Live in New York video, is great, great here. And I have to say, for me personally, I, I got goosebumps when I saw the footage of this show for the first time. And I, I think – I'm pretty sure I had this on bootleg too, and it was just bad quality. I hadn't watched it in years. But seeing the great quality version of it on this, when they show the long view of the stage and you see that that <laughs> eagle from the Seer stenciled onto the band's amps – and it's kind of uh, flanking both sides of the stage, that giant eagle stenciled yeah. into the band's equipment. That 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 gets me fired up. That, that gives me goosebumps to see that. It's so cool. And um, the, the band's attire maybe is questionable. I prefer what they were, what they look like in the Steel Town show, where they got, they're wearing kind of the denim and the rough the rough look. But uh, we've got their what I always call their Southern Plantation outfit here for for the Seer tour. But um, Love the playing on this, and just great tracks, great energy on this show, and um, one of my favorites. I really enjoy watching this. It really is a great show. Um, 
it was sent as a whistle test extra, and uh, I checked track listing against what they broadcast, and it is exactly the same. So I don't know if they cut down the set for the TV transmission, but they haven't cut it down further for the DVD release. So that's uh, that's one thing. And uh, it's like you said, the, the band is, uh, you can really see the development. And we spoke um, on the first audio CD, you can see the development between the David Jensen sessions and the John Peel sessions. And now we can compare with the Edinburgh show and the, this show for the next tour, sort of back-to-back presented on this disc. And there, there is growth. There is uh, different approaches to songs, but they're slight. They're not dramatic, like perhaps they were the first uh, six months of the band's uh, evolution. And you know, as the band progress, it's more about the subtle tweaks. And certain songs are now set and will only change minimally from this point onward. So you recognize some of the arrangements and others change more. So um, that's the thing I take when I keep looking back to shows and getting new shows served like this. It's, it's I look for the tweaks and look at where was the band like at this particular stage in the career. And perhaps I analyze it far too much. Maybe I should just shut up and just enjoy the songs because such a damn good show. Well, let, let's finish our, our discussion on this um, DVD. And There's a lot of other stuff on this DVD, DVD too, but is there anything on the DVD that we haven't talked about that you really were surprised, that you liked, that you were... Um, you know, besides the, the shows that we've already mentioned, anything that really stuck out to you? Well, in, I think it was a very neat touch that uh, Stewart was interviewed by Richard Jobson. <laughs> <laughs> I was, that's the one I was going to say, too. Yep. Yeah. So that's that's a really nice touch. I don't know if it's uh, a rarity. I mean, that has made its rounds and it's been on YouTube and all these things. But uh, it's kind of like two older pals and they used to be in this band, you know, that some of us might have heard of and. Here to meet again, and it, uh, there's something about that that I just find endearing to see. Yeah, so, I love um, that. Yeah, th- th- something about that. I just, I just love it. But it's funny. There's a little, there's a little subtext under that. Maybe I'm imagining it. Maybe not. But there's, there's, it, it does feel like two old pals reminiscing. But there's also just kind of a, a melancholy feel in a way too. Like they're not, they're just not. It's almost like if you get, if you meet an old girlfriend years later, and there's, you might be cordial and and nice but there's just something there where you just know that you're not the same people anymore and there's kind of that undercurrent that goes through that interview and it's also interesting because it's really probably big country at at uh one of their lower points really where they were they were really they were they were promoting heart of the world so they they did just come off a very successful greatest hits album and richard jobson asked stewart about it and and um also by the way we get to hear stewart play like a really brief clip of into the valley which was a rarity because he hardly ever played anything yeah um, skids related at all in, in a in a public forum so that was cool but um so yeah so they're, they're recording heart of the world and they're promoting heart of the world and it's interesting to see richard jobson talking to stewart about that and stewart even admits in the interview he says this is this is probably the most rock oriented song we've ever done which it really doesn't have many of the folky elements that that are usually in our music so the country is going through a transition phase, really uh, not not worlds apart, but a lot different at this point from what he had done with the skids, obviously. So it's kind of interesting to see that uh, those two minds meeting again. But then it's one of the it's one of the cheesiest intros to a song that I've ever seen. Um, Richard Jobson takes Stewart to this uh, underground bunker type of place. 
and he says something like, "Now you better hurry because you gotta. The band is starting. You gotta. You gotta catch up with them." And <laughs> Stewart starts running like almost full sprints across this this catwalk while the band starts playing "Heart of the World," which is of course them lip syncing it. And he runs, and the band is on stage playing. And he runs and grabs his guitar and puts it around his neck, and he gets to the microphone just in time to say, "Ow!" <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that does it for episode 26 of The Great Divide. We will be back next time. Keep in mind the competition we talked about in the last episode. We keep it open until the Yuletide episode. So go to that one for more details. Go to the Facebook group for more details. And I hope you participate. Yes, because you will win a wonderful prize. The In a Broken Promised Land, 7-inch. And it's a true rarity. I don't think any of us have it. Maybe you have it. I don't have it. I don't. I have it. I have it in my home, waiting to send out to whoever wins this contest. Yeah, and it probably is going to be me. So with that, take it, care, guys. It, it will not be him. Bye bye. Yeah.